welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what aged like fine strawberry wine and what aged like milk. I'm Izzy, I use sincere pronouns. I'm Kit, I use she, her pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things, at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Uh, before we continue on, I'm going to let everybody know, yes, I sound a little rough. That's because last night I recorded Hope's Hearth with uh, Riley Hopkins, and we have very similar uh, chaos vibes, and I was laughing a lot. <laughs> so, I'm fine. I'm not sick. It's just, you know, sometimes you play a tabletop game with somebody whose chaos vibes just match yours, and it's more chaos than initially anticipated. And I would also like to warn readers, if this is your first episode listening to us, please do not, because this is going to be one of those episodes where we talk about how the series aged like milk. Yep. And I just want to give that a warning right up top. This episode is going to be a rough one. We are getting into more of the, like, the it, it start, it's at the end of this episode, so after editing, it'll be, like, the next episode, if, we are li- if you're listening to this. this particular batch of episodes, we're just gonna be grumpy. It's rough. Because, like, there, it, it's bad because, like, it starts out pretty strong, and right towards the middle, you're gonna hear our mood starting to sour. Because, like, some stuff is gonna pop up that's gonna be like, why... Why did you choose to go this route? And we're going to have talks about the, the pacing and the, the tone of the story, but we don't want to get into that right now. Yeah. All right. So today we're reading the first half of the second book in Martin the Lion. God, this shit's confusing if you don't, if you don't read the books. Uh, basically chapters 15 through 22. Uh, content warnings are, of course, slavery, bodily harm, torture... Bees. Uh, I can't think of anything else to add. Uh, implied cannibalism, which is not actually cannibalism because they're not the same species. Yes. Uh, implied cannibalism, as well as yet again savage tribe tropes. Savage tribe tropes. Uh, concussion. What a concussion be? I think that's uh, bodily okay. harm. Yeah, bodily harm. Uh. Threatening of a female character by a male character who is treating her in a very um, disrespectful way. Yeah. 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 Like if this was any other genre, it would have been way creepier. So that that's one point for yeah. Brian. That's one point for Brian. Like I know several authors There's... whom I love very much who would have made that very unfortunate. He's only done it once and it was, it was in Marielle. Uh, because like the pirates who found her hiding were very... Mm, about yeah. finding her, and then she immediately was just like, no! Yeah, tears a guy's throat out, just like, heck of you. <laughs> so. Yeah. Marshak has the gates thrown open, and fires lighting up the courtyard in anticipation of the show to come. Because remember, Bella and company are doing a show. Uh, the le- the two leaders eat while keeping an eye on each other. Badrang eats easily, but Clog is once again stymied by the fancy food. And like, since Izzy pointed out to me in the last recording how a lot of the dynamic between um, Badrang and Clog is a class dynamic... It's like this sequence of them eating food together really, it's like, oh yeah, that's completely right. Because, you know, Badring's having no problem. He's, he's eating daintily. He's, as you put Izzy, he's pairing the right drinks with the right food. Meanwhile, Bat, you know, Clog is just like horfing down whatever he wants and just like looking at like, what the, what the heck is this fancy thing? How am I supposed to eat this? Yeah. I did look up uh, Green Gauge uh, Cordial and it's a type of uh, white plum. Okay. So they were drinking the right alcohol with it. Okay. Um, but it's probably Badrang who chose that. Yes. Whereas uh, what Clog does is he takes his like mackerel and just dunks it in the cordial and then eats it. And then takes a swig of like his uh, like sea kelp ale. Like, or whatever I, the fuck. 
I do partially feel that him dunking it like that is also meant to be a. I think that's part of his game against bad. Uh, bad yeah, but like it I, is... it's one hundred percent intentional. I think where he's just going, you know, like you think you're so fancy, I'm not gonna try and hide what I am. Yeah, it's it's that back and forth. Yeah, but it, it's still one of those things where he's just like it's it's food is food i'm gonna eat it and you know eat it as as fast as possible and not separate it nice and neatly you know uh because i'm this is not me talking along the lines of like people with like sensory issues separating their food but having food be like separate entities is very much a like uh like upper class type thing because, you know, a lot of lower class food is, like, you're mixing an everything stew, you know, type you of You put vibe. everything in together so you get the maximum amount of nutrition and flavor you can get. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's like simple food. It's like when you think about soul food, you know, simple food, the kind of stuff that's been passed down for generations upon generations. It's stews. It's soups. It's... It's goulashes. It's everything thrown together into a pot and left to simmer so all that flavor comes out. Colcannon, which is cabbage and potatoes. Yeah. And it's kind of like how my, my family likes to joke. Like, we we have, like, fancy meals that we'll make, but for the most part, my family enjoys cooking simpler stuff. Yeah. And a lot of times we'll do what we call, like, redneck versions of stuff. We'll have redneck burritos. We'll have redneck goulash or whatever, redneck casserole, where it's like we'll take something from... One, like, one type of culture, but we'll make it with what we have around the house. Yeah, my family has this recipe, and I'm talking, like, my, my like, blood family, because I haven't made it for Canon Chevy yet, because text for them it would be, like, a texture hell. Okay. But we have this recipe called Creamy Tacos, where it's, you take, like, what you would do to make, like, tacos, uh, you know, like, you would make, like, it, having all the ingredients separately normally, you'd have, like, the refried beans, you'd have the meat... You'd have the, uh, the like, cheese and stuff, like the queso, uh, which my mom always made with Velveeta cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I love Velveeta, uh, because I grew up eating it. It's cheese product, baby. But instead of having <laughs> all of the ingredients separated out, you would make them into, like, this ladleable, like, it's not a soup, it's not a stew, but it, it's just, it's ladleable. Everything's mixed together, melted together, emulsified. Not emulsified, that's the wrong word, because that implies that the beans and the meat got blended, and they didn't. Um, and then you'd, instead of having it, like, on, like, a soft, like, taco shell, you would pour it over, like, uh, tortilla chips or Doritos. Oh, so it's that. almost more, it's almost more like, uh, nachos than burritos, or yeah. tacos. Yeah. That's not, we, okay, we like, once you... creamy tacos. Okay, like, where I grew up, that would just be called, like, a taco bowl or a taco salad. Yeah. Except yeah, we, that none of good. us liked having shredded lettuce on our tacos. Oh, meanwhile, again, like, I grew up in California, so I got, like, I got the full spectrum of, like, actual good Mexican food, like, from Mexican families, like, the yeah, good see, stuff. Yeah, see, that's different. If um, I get a taco but, or a burrito or whatever the fuck from, like, a good Mexican place and it's got lettuce on it, I'm gonna eat that shit. But if it's, like, my white-ass family making creamy tacos <laughs> on a friday night no because my mom if she's gonna buy the lettuce it's gonna be the shit shredded lettuce that taco bell uses and i'm not about that life it tastes bad it's got bad texture it's cold lettuce on hot taco and i hate it imagine being able to get lettuce that's actually edible right now god i live for everyone you guys know i live up north right now it's like russian roulette with the lettuce because my mom bought like a head of lettuce at our local grocery store opened it up and like it was already brown inside she's like no we just want some greens uh, broccoli <laughs> i had cauliflower last night and i made myself a little cauliflower carrot and pea Ooh. concoction because hey like, once again mixing everything together yeah because like i also looked at the stove and my dad we always have like two cast iron pans mom has her little pan that she'll cook her eggs in in the morning and then dad has his big pan that he uses for everything from bacon to like baking dinner in and he'd used it to make bacon that morning so there's all this lovely bacon grease just sitting in the pan still i'm like hey dad mind if i use this and dad went no so I just threw the veggies in there baked them up in the bacon grease threw a little <laughs> garlic and onion in there and there you go uh, so 
Badrang, going back to, to the reading, we've read two sentences. <laughs> Badrang is unimpressed by the early sight of the Rose Hip players. Clog puffs up and tries to threaten him, though. He's not to hurt his friend, the rabbit, and his crew. You remember Tibar, the magic rabbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Badrang, of course, at this point, has just completely dropped Corsair speak. He's done with it. Uh, and it makes Clog all the more cross. Uh, once more, he emphasizes the players are not to be harmed or enslaved. Like, Badrang just drops it, starts acting like he's better than Clog, and Clog is just like, I know your true colors. You can't fool me. You son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say son of a bitch. The, the implications are there. The implication is there. These these animals can't say real swears, but you know they would if they could. It, it's it's one of my favorite memes. Let X say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Let Clog say fuck. There you go. <laughs> he deserves it. Uh, Brome almost freezes under his frog mask when he sees Badrang. But a gentle word from Roanoke and the comfort of the mask gets him moving again. Because he's wearing this ridiculous frog mask. No one can tell who he is. Uh, Feldo is hidden under a comical fox mask. And it's got like rolling eyes and it's just ridiculous. It's uh, like, part Spot- of me is like, is this, like, I almost made a note on this. But it's like, is this, like, why are none of the foxes in the audience offended by this? Like, you'd think some of the foxes in the audience would be like, oh... Okay, I see how it is. Listen, their bosses are there and they can't they can't say anything unless their bosses mm. say something. True. Uh but they need a pirate spots... union. <laughs> right? God, let the pirates <laughs> unionize. <laughs> actually though, sorry, this is a related tangent. It's a small short one. Pirates were actually incredibly democratic. Yeah, they were. Yeah. It's one of the things Brian gets wrong. Yep. Anyway. Um But Feldo spots each and every hated face of the enemy, but he cannot find his father in the crowd because, like, none of the slaves are there. Mm -hmm. Except for, like, ones that are serving food. Uh, Bala is, of course, in his element. Uh, Ever the adrenaline junkie, he finds performing under the enemy's eyes gets his heart going. He cheekily starts the show by going up to Clog, greeting him, and singing a cheeky little tune while playing spoons on Clog's belly. If you will read the cheeky little tune. Yeah, let me get there on page 139 in our edition. <clears throat> Wins a stoat, not a stoat, when he wears clogs in a velvet coat. Wins a stoat, an old sea dog, when he's whiskery, friskery, attery, biskery, captain, truman, Clog. And like the fact that he's playing spoons off of his belly, it's just like my dude. It's very funny. <laughs> uh, Clog slaps Badrang's back in a jolly mood, and the tyrant is clearly already annoyed. He challenges Bala to do some magic, so Bala does. He swipes Badrang's drink, drinks it down, refills it, then goes to throw it in Badrang's face, but it's just dry leaves. Clog has a good laugh. Bala asks if Badrang would like to see more magic or the play. Badrang asks for more magic. So Bala calls for the deadly dagger of death. From the Department of Redundancy Department. Yep. Uh, the two mousemaids bring forth a dagger on a red silk cushion. It is a wickedly curved blade. Uh, I'm thinking it's like a dirk or something. Wait, does it say it's curved? Hold on. I believe so. Um, no, it's a long dagger. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. See, um, I always imagine when somebody talks about, like, a deadly dagger of death, they're talking about, like, a dirk, which are that, those, like, curved daggers. Oh, that's funny, because you see, for me, like, I always imagine, like, those long ones that look almost like letter openers, because, like, in traditional, like, betrayal scenes, like, the villain always pulls, like, the long skinny dagger out from somewhere, and he's just like, <laughs> shank. Oh, apparently I'm wrong. A dirk is not curved. It's a, it is a straight blade. Hold on. What dirk is, is not straight? What are you talking about? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking up this particular blade so that I know what the fuck it's called. And we have a weekly joke um, now. Uh, our weekly looking up weapons Google search. Because I did that later on in this. Because I was quite delighted <laughs> by the appearance of a, a spear thrower. Um, which... 
I shouldn't be surprised that you're a Oh, it's going. Me. It's a Chris. It's a Chris. <laughs> I I believe. Hold on. Yeah, it's a Chris. Okay. K R I S. Um, it's Indonesian. Okay, that's what okay. I was thinking of. Okay. Anyway. Uh. Uh, Roanoke chants out the story of the dagger, if you would like to read the story. There's gonna be a lot of very dramatic bullshit here, mm -hmm. y'all. From the deepest, darkest dungeons, neath the mountains of the moon, comes the dreadful dagger of death to bring a creature to sad doom. It's very good. And then... She drags she up then, Celandine. Yep, she drags up a dramatic Celandine, who quotes more lines of this act. She's too young and pretty to die! And now to prove the sharpness of the dagger, he produces an apple from behind a vermin's ear and slices it up, asking who'd like to see him slay the squirrel maid. She's such a tearful beauty, none call out for her death until Badrang speaks. And as he has demanded, Balaz strikes at Celandine. And the dagger had, of course, slipped into the sheath and not stabbed her at all, because it is a collapsible dagger, because this is theater. Uh, but she and Bala play up the sadness of the moment, aided by Buckler playing a drum and whispering for her to hurry it up. She collapses... She... Hang on. It, it, it's cute because she... She goes, Alas, no more, I'll laugh or sing. Or, or sorry, correction. Bala starts, Alas, no more, I'll laugh or sing. I've murdered her, the pretty little thing. Celandine staggered about, moaning pitifully. No more I'll see the dawning o'er the trees, nor see the golden sunlight in the sky. The seasons change, the birds, the flowers, the bees. Alack a day, poor me who has to die. <laughs> Buckler's just like, hurry it up. And then she collapses into Roanoke's paws with a final sob. You know, a very like Judy Hopps and death. Yeah. <laughs> Blah, 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 blood. <laughs> blood. Blood. <laughs> I love this level of theater. It is some of my favorite shit. As a theater kid, this is some of my favorite shit. It's when theater folks are allowed to just absolutely ham it up and have fun. Oh, abso-fucking-lutely. Uh, everyone is saddened by this. She'd been such a pretty little thing. Even Clog scolds Bala, saying the mood is ruined now. So... Bala says as a favor to his friend, he'll bring her back to life. He chants a spell and makes a show of pulling out the dagger. Celandine awakens, not a scratch on her, and she acts as though she's just awoken from a nap. Uh, Bala is quick to hide the false dagger beneath his cloak and produces a real one to show to Badrang and Clog for their inspection. I fully expected Badrang to just, like, turn around and stab one of his vermin in this scene. Like, I fully expected someone to get stabbed by this dagger. Yep. But no. My expectations yep. were subverted. Uh, Clog tests it and is once more awed by his magic friend Tibar. Like, he stabs the table a few times. Badrang, though, treats it coolly and challenges Bala to do another one. Now, Bala gestures at the disguised Feldo, chanting in rhyme that he'd make him disappear. Roanoke reminds Feldo that this is his chance to go look for his father. He won't get another one. Now, Bala plays up how he's going to banish the false fox. Feldo plays back that he doesn't want to, not knowing where he'd end up. Uh, the crowd sides with Bala, chanting for Feldo to be put in the box. <laughs> put that fox in a box! Put that thing back where it came from, or so help so me. me. Let's see. So help there's, me. Let's see. There's, there's. Da, da, da. Here we go. Uh, who will lock the box up? Sorry, it's like it's it's interspersed between. Here we go. Now then, young fella, you cunning fox, how'd you like to disappear? Just place yourself inside yon box, and like a flasher, out of here. Feldo backed off, his head flopping comically as he pleaded. What? Vanish me, Sir Tibar, no. To what strange place would I then go? Under the sea, or maybe up there, to regions of the nether air? I pray you, sir, please let me be. Magic Tibar, don't vanish me. And then Bala turns to the crowd. Where's the best place for the fox? Locked up tight inside the box. And the vermin start chanting that back. And then we have one moment of 
Oh, pity to, oh, trefoil chanting. Ah, okay, so while Felda's escaping, anyway, sorry, that part, I'll edit this out. You go ahead. Yeah. The crowd sides with Bella, chanting for Feldo to be put in the box. Uh, there's a bit of a fake fight as the troop tries to get him in the box, the chant continuing. Uh, with a flash and a bang of fire and smoke, Roanoke is able to spirit Feldo away. Uh, Buckler beats on his drum, allowing him to shake the box. Trefoil throws her voice, helping it seem like Feldo was still inside the box. Clog, of course, falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, and then they have volunteers from the crowd come and bind up the box with ropes and locks. Basically, we get a bunch of the, um, the, like, corsairs showing off their knot-tying skills, uh, people putting, like, locks into place on, like, the little, like, metal, uh, uh, catches and stuff. Like, they, they have got this box shut up tight. Low-key, the, the knot-tying thing really charms me because if there's one thing sailors are extremely proud of, it's their not tying capabilities. Agreed. Uh, so with that done, Badrang struts up, holding the dagger. He asks if the fox is gone, and Bala asks, uh, asks he be allowed to say the spell, does so, then turns to Badrang and bows, saying the box is empty. Shall he show him? Badrang says no. If the fox really is gone, he won't mind what he'll do next. And then, of course, he just stabs the box with the dagger, which causes Clog to roar out in fury and charge him with his cutlass drawn. Balas smooths this over uh, by tripping Clog, snatching up the cutlass, and stabbing the box himself. He helps the captain up, dusting him off and saying, if he says the fox is gone, he's gone. Then he invites the other vermin to also stab the box, uh, and they do, until it's so full of various weapons it only takes a kick from Bala to have it shattered a bits, clearly empty. He is triumphant, declaring that his magic is real. And I do love this because, like, I, even knowing some of the tricks to stage magic, you still can't see it sometimes. The sleight of hand is so good. Their, their distraction, their ability to turn your eye from what they don't want you to see. It just, it delights me. Honestly, I find stage magic more delightful than any real magic because even knowing all they're doing is pulling a trick on you, you still can't see it. That is it's skill. It's so fun. Uh, and then, of course, after this delightful exchange, we get little bitch, Droop, <clears throat> get his voice <laughs> squealing out that the slaves are escaping because this little bastard can't keep his mouth shut. He's a class traitor. I need y'all to know that Izzy literally just put in the notes, little bitch. I did. That's it. That's, that's the note, little bitch. Because he's a little bitch. <laughs> and now we cut back to Martin and company. Uh, they've spent the hot summer day marching with their shadows ahead of them. As evening falls, they begin to wonder where to camp. Rose suggests an old tall oak, one that Martin notices has three tops, as the rhyme had told them to find. Extremely straightforward, you know? Everything yeah. is just, you know, right there. And, like, it, it means, like, they definitely know they're going the right direction. And you know what, like, this just gave me a flashback to? It's flipping the... Land Before Time, little little story his mom tells him how to get to the Great Valley. Yeah. You know, like, my brain just went back to that when he sees the things and he's like, wait, we are going the right way. We're seeing the right things. We're doing it. We're going the right way. We got this, y'all. Uh, so our, our little group settles in a mossy hollow formed by the dead tree's roots that night, and they enjoy a meal. Rose worries about her brother and Feldo, so Martin comforts her. She can trust Polykin's words. Feldo will protect Brome. He's a warrior. Rose asks what's it like to be a warrior. Martin tries to deflect, saying that he isn't one until he gets his father's sword back. Rose, though, is quick to call him on it, saying he's been acting a warrior with or without the sword. And I find it interesting how Brian is, like, playing with Martin's self-esteem here. Because this is not yet Martin the warrior. He's starting down that path. He's beginning to learn what it is to be a warrior. But he still has those self-doubts. He's still young. He hasn't proven himself yet. Mm -hmm. So he's just, he's like, I don't have my magic feather. I can't fly. You know? <laughs> um, 
And like, I don't know if that's actually, like I say Dumbo Feather Syndrome, but I don't know if that's actually what it's called. He doesn't have his MacGuffin, so he doesn't think he can do what he needs to do. But it's, um, it, it's fascinating when you look back on the books that we've read already, how Martin's spirit always emphasizes with his chosen ones. He's like, listen, the sword is not magic. You are what matter. You are the one wielding the sword. You are the warrior. You are the, the warrior. The weapon does not make the warrior. The warrior makes the weapon. Exactly. And I, I, I admit, like, there's a lot of tonal dissonance in this book, but I enjoy seeing Martin learning that lesson. His sword yeah. might make him feel complete, but it's not what makes him a warrior. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the other two are snoring softly, which gives Martin another excuse to diffuse the moment by saying warriors need sleep, too. Rose, though, stays awake long after the others, homesick. She says the name of her home, Noonvale, and finally manages to settle down, thinking of the place that she feels safest and happiest. And, like, Noonvale is getting, like, very heavily mythologized in the text so far, because we haven't been there yet. Mm-hmm. It has a very, like, Lomahedge vibe to it right now, which is, like, well, no wonder Redwall turned out the way that it did. Right. We've like, got these two different places that are heavily influenced its con- its like construction and like philosophy. Yeah, because it like Martin took a lot of what influenced him, like these soft places that he managed to stay between all of the trials in his life, and he put those soft places into Redwall. Like he helped build that those shelters, those places of comfort and security. And Abbas Germain wanted a place for people to be safe. In her vaguely Gregorian-esque, kind of Christian-esque, weird, (laughs) non-religion, whatever it is. Um, This is going to bug me for the entirety of the series. And I do apologize to everyone, but I just, I'm always delighted. I'm always delighted by world building that actually takes the time to flesh out. Like, if you're going to have a religion in your world building, Flush it out, please. Like, give us ridiculous rights. Give us ridiculous stories. Where and is this continent? Myths. Who fucking knows? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like some of my favorite series, like maybe they don't... Okay. Like in the Anne McCaffrey series, you know, the Dragon Rise of Pern, like they don't have Christianity or really any religion at all, but you still see echoes of it. Like they say Jays. Jays is a butchering of Jesus. You know, like, even just little things like that. Like, give us a little foundation of where they're coming from, and the we can build is that. the weird dragons that used to be horses. <laughs> That's actually, true! That's a true thing! Actually, they used to be cute little lizards, and the little lizards are still there. And when they find them again, the lizard's like, Hi guys, you're back! And they're like, oh shit, we can actually tame you too? Yeah! Just been waiting for you. <laughs> uh, the next morning, Martin awakes to a perfect dawn. He lays there, thinking about Noonvale... And what Rose and Grum had told him about it. It sounds like a good place to settle down. Uh, rip and rest, Martin. You're not going to settle down there. <laughs> no, sorry, Martin. Like, I know you're, you're you getting... You don't get to stay there. You're, I know you're getting heart eyes, doki doki, towards this girl, but she ain't the one for you, son. You're, you're never going to find anybody. Sorry, bud. It would be really interesting, though, if they did end up having children. Like, it's like a bastard child who's just the son of Martin. Just, you know... That's if my any, fan fiction. Yeah, I was going to say, if any fan fiction writers out there want to have a go at it, we'll support you. <laughs> um, his musings are interrupted by Grum, who asks if he intends to sleep all season. Anyway, what would he like for breakfast? Grum could make zoop. Zoop. It's not soup. He it's zoop. It's, he calls it zoop, and it is my favorite thing. I'm calling all soups zoop. Zoop. Uh, Rose says no, they're to eat from their packs. Martin backs her up, saying it's better to not light a fire in strange territory. Now, Grum wanders off, grumbling. He'll at least have fresh water. So he scoots off to find some. Rose chuckles, saying he should have been named Grump, not Grum. And also, this isn't said, but it is, like, we didn't put this in here, but Grump, Grum will always have fresh water. He'll suck on icicles in the middle of winter. Yeah. Which, you know what? Fair and valid. Fresh water, good, first thing in the morning. He's very good. I can especially appreciate that, considering we went, like, from Monday night to Thursday afternoon without any fresh water in our house because our our, our pump had some trouble. God. So I can, def- I can definitely appreciate having fresh water. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the other three share a meal, but when Grum doesn't join them, they start to wonder where he'd gone because, like, he never, like, disappears from the group for this long. Martin warns Rose off of calling for him. If he can hear her, anyone else can also hear her. So, like, if there's anybody who's unfriendly in this space, you know? Yeah. They go searching, and they find that the path splits, and we get a new, like, another reference back to the uh, poem that Polly Keen gave them to not follow the path that smells sweet, because it's dangerous. Uh, Palum is, of course, scared. Um, so he's Don't left with this. Yeah, same. Listen, he's been through some traumatic shit. He's got all rights to just be like, I'm going to stay back here. Despite how big he is, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so he's left at the split in the road to keep an eye out for Grum in case of Grum comes like wandering back. Martin and Rose carry on the harder of the two paths, hearing an odd, loud hum. Uh, then they hear Grum whispering quietly and fearfully. They both creep forwards. The closer they get, the sweeter the air smells. And what they find is a massive beehive covering yeah, a fallen tree. Here's the trigger yeah, warning bees. for the bees sequence. Bees! Bees. Bees? Bees. Bees! Bees! So they find a giant beehive that is covering a massive fallen tree that's across the road. From the branches to the trunk with the corresponding amount of bees to tend to it. And let me tell you, you may think you know how many bees live in a beehive. But you know, your average ass sized beehive that maybe you see on like a, a, like a honey farm, like a bee farm or whatever the fuck. There's more bees in there than you think there are. Mm-hmm. There are so many bees in your quote unquote average sized beehive. There's thousands this thing has to be up in the billions of bees. Yeah, this is... It is huge and terrifying. And the fact that the bees haven't, like, started swarming to separate out from the sheer size of it, terrifying. It means they must That's have a te- really good, really good source of nectar somewhere. And a really good or... queen yeah. that they like. Uh, also... Something, something, bees in the Redwall books are sapient? Somewhat? It's, like, implied that they're kind of sentient. So, we get in this that these bees are bee-sized, right? They're just, like, bees. Yeah. And everybody is bigger than them. But, like, we got in Redwall that the bees were, like... More like Cat-sized? Yeah. Because, like, because, like, there's definitely one or two people who say they can speak bee. Yeah. Like, you can learn to talk to bees in the Redwall series. It's really weird. We also get a bit with, like, a bird that can kind of talk in this. It's... You, the inconsistencies along with this shit is okay. gonna bother me forever. You know what it makes me think of that kind of makes it a little easier for me is that in... Remember in Narnia, there were the wise beasts and there were the stupid beasts. And weren't the wise beasts generally, like, a little bigger than the regular beasts? Yes. So maybe it's somewhat similar in Redwall, where, like, the bigger the animal, generally, the more likely likely they are to be sentient or have this intelligence. This implies that there are, like, stupid mice that are just mouse-sized running around. Well, we've never seen one of those, though. I think this would apply more to, like, what Brian doesn't consider a main species. You know, like, sometimes the reptiles are able to talk. Sometimes they're small and just reptiles sometimes the birds are very intelligent but generally the smaller the bird the less intelligent they are you know like the way he likes to use rock doves or like the unnamed seabirds as food or fodder for Mm -hmm. you know the villain's wrath or to chuck out a window to make a point why does this happen almost every book brian why do they always like to chuck bird bodies out windows um reasons reasons. anyway Uh, inconsistencies aside uh, with the giant beehive, Grum is trapped at the base of the trunk, using his ladle, because he carries this thing everywhere, to protect his nose and breathe. I have, I need everybody to know before I continue on, I have a bee phobia. <laughs> and like this, it, it doesn't like trigger me. It doesn't trigger the phobia. It doesn't bother me because it's not happening to me. A lot of the time, it's just if, if there's a bee around me, I start panicking. Uh, because I am terrified of getting stung. Uh, but if you have a bee phobia that's worse than mine, maybe tune out for the next, like, few minutes. Yeah. Because it's 
bad. <laughs> because as as I'm gonna continue going forward, uh, Grum is just covered in bees. They are swarming all over him. He is covered in bees. It's like a carpet of bees. It just makes it's, me think of. This is, uh, it makes me think of like when you do see bees swarming, and it's just like this this sheet of bodies, just like all crawling all over each other. I like to watch videos on YouTube of like the bee specialists like removing swarms, and they'll just get like a handful of bees. Bees follow fluid dynamics. It's so weird. It's fascinating. Well, like hive insects in general move like a fluid. It's fascinating. Bees to are watch. weird. It is so fascinating, but they'll just get, like, when they're removing swarms and trying to find the queen, they'll just take, like, a handful of bees and just kind of shake it out into a box, and it's just, you just grabbed a handful of bees, and they're chill, and you can just shake them into a box, and it's fine. Bees are weird, y'all. Bees are fucking weird. Anyway, Rose calls out to him quietly, letting him know that they're there. Uh, Grum speaks, muffling yelps of pain as he stung a bit at a time. Like, basically what's happening is the bees are swarming over him, and they're, like, having fun with him by, like, intermittently stinging him. They're not stinging him all at once, because they know that he can't do anything. Um, and Martin realizes that they're also trapped, because the bees have moved in behind them, and when he speaks, it gets stung as well. But Rose remains unstung. She theorizes that the bees must like her voice. Uh, this is a thing. Bees do react to sound um, because of the vibrations. Uh, it's not necessarily the sound itself. It is the pattern of the vibrations. Um, so deeper vibrations. These particular bees just must not like deeper vibrations. But Rose, because she's a woman, has, like, a higher-pitched voice, so the vibrations are going to be higher in pitch and be much, like, faster because of that higher pitch. Mm -hmm. Less um, threatening, in a way. Exactly. Because, you know, like, a lot of, like, that deep, I think it's infrasonic sound like that, comes from bigger animals. Bigger, more yeah. threatening animals that usually want to steal and eat the honey. Exactly. Whereas, like, Rose has a much, like, higher-pitched, much more soothing voice. We get a lot of bits going forward about how Rose has, like, such a nice, good voice. Like, she utilizes her voice as, like, a a tool for survival as well as a weapon in ways that are so fucking fascinating. And I, and I like it because, you know... And it gets, it gets pointed out, too! Yeah. Because we, we've had, like, good woman warriors and good woman diplomats but I, I like seeing rose who she's a little bit of both like she's willing yeah. to fight but she's able to use her smarts and her like more traditionally feminine traits to protect she is them. a leader yes she is a leader and i love her and i am yet again I read these books so long ago. I do not remember how this book ends, except for the fact that they beat the shit out of Marshank, because of course they do. <laughs> um, she has to become leader of Noonvale. Like, she has to. I mean, otherwise she'd go with Martin, so yeah. And she doesn't, so like... Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Rose theorizes that the bees must like her voice, so she says she will sing, and the two boys are to escape while she does so. She begins to sing of Noonvale, and the bees calm down almost immediately. You will find me at Noonvale on the side of a hill, when the summer is peaceful and high. There, where streamlets meander the valley is still, meet the blue of a calm, cloudless sky. And then... And, like, as she's singing, like, Martin sees that it's working and Rose reaches out uh, to take both his and Grum's paws. And, like, she continues to sing as they retreat, like, step by step, very slowly. They retreat. The bees seem contented by her singing and lazily leave to return to their hive as the trio retreats. Hey, now you can finish singing the song because yeah. there's more to the song. Yeah, like, all there's... of this is happening interspersed with her singing. Yeah. It's, like, it's a little hard to, like, read this part out in summarization because he does interspace a lot of the rhymes and the interactions so so if you want to allow, now read the entirety of it okay look for me at dawning when the earth is asleep 
till each dewdrop is kissed by the day. Neath the rowan and alder a vigil I'll keep every moment that you are away. The old earth gently turns as the seasons change slowly, all the flowers and leaves born to wane. Hear my song o'er the lea, like the wind soft and lowly. Oh, please come back to Noonvale again. That's a melancholic song, too. It is. That's the good stuff right there. So Pelham is happy to see them, uh, if dismayed by the bee stings. Uh, they settle in the loam of the roadside, Martin wondering at Rose's voice. It has saved them twice over now. And Kit in our notes was like, now this is the kind of bard I could get behind. And I'm just like mm -hmm. leaving our poor little thief behind, I see. Like, how dare Listen, you? Okay. I, I mean, I can like more than one bard. Come on. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> pat, pat. I haven't forgotten him. I've got, I've got room in my heart for more than one bard. For Rose and for Gonf. No, you yes. know what? No wonder Martin really liked Gonf. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, all right. Pelham makes up poultices for the stings, and Martin says the only thing better than those would be to have Rose sing again. Uh, Grum agrees and tells how he and her father would watch her charm birds from trees. And of course, flustered, Rose hops up and says, you know what? Anyone in Noonvale could sing that song. It's time to get moving again. We're going to keep going. Do, do, do. Stop complimenting Grum me. Got... Grum never got his breakfast. Never got his soup. And then, of course, Kit in the notes says, Poor Grum never got breakfast because he, he never didn't. got his breakfast. He did not get his brekkie. He, he in fact, got not brekkie. No soup. No breakfast. No soup. Uh, the boys trail behind her, Palum helping to pull stingers out of the wounds. Um, because, you know, bees, when they sting you, they leave their, their stingers behind and they'll stay in the wound, uh, and it hurts like a bitch. Whereas wasps can sting you multiple times and don't die because they're predators. Because God decided let this small creature be angry. Yeah. And you know what? In their defense, we tend to get up in their space a lot. Yeah. So like, no, I I am not anti wasps. I love trust wasps. me on that. Yeah, I love wasps more than I like honeybees because wasps are the wasps that we have are native, whereas a lot of the honeybees are actually an introduced species, and the native mm -hmm. bees of the United States are types of bumblebees, carpenter bees, and solitary bees. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, if you're gonna save the bees, please look into what bees live around you locally and donate to organizations that focus on preserving the habitats of those bees. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, they rest under a huge canopy of trees for a late lunch. Palom and Grum enjoy playing in the water of a cheerful little stream, while Martin and Rose giggle as they watch them. Until a voice booms out around them. Uh, did you mean to type beware? Uh, da, 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 up up da, here up here no he says they say where oh, well where done. is like where is one of the ways it's like you know where do not move here it's oh, just an okay. abbreviation of beware okay um yeah it's not commonly used nowadays but it is an actual usage of the word okay yeah so yeah. where they shall leave its path Merton asks who it is and the voice says it is Murdop. none can pass him uh, Martin says that they're just simple travelers headed for Noonvale. Uh, he asks Rose to keep talking uh, so that he can find the creature. Uh, Rose does so, making her voice harsh and grating as she says she is Martin the Warrior, and Martin has slain more than Murdop could imagine. There's silence before Murdop counters. They do not fear a single warrior. Switching to her natural voice, Rose says there's four, her included. And she's the worst slayer of Noonvale. She eats Murdops for breakfast. Palum plays in, declaring himself Palum the Mighty, saying he prefers Murdops as snacks, but he's nothing compared to Grum the Growler. And a, a <laughs> slightly hesitant reply asks, what's that? Grum strides forward, brandishing his ladle and threatening to cook the Murdop as a zoop. A zoop. Uh, now truly unsure, it tries to threaten them again. Turn back! 
They all three march forward with strong steps and strong words, the Murdop getting more desperate with its threats, until it's cut off and Martin calls for his friends. A hullabaloo ensues and the trio rushes to Martin's aid. And I do find it interesting how often like this trope of like an unseen creature using a scary voice to try and scare off other creatures. Mm -hmm. Like they don't want to fight, but they don't want to be really be messed with. So like, oh, I've got this, like, I can do this big scary voice. I'll just intimidate them because, you know, people are always afraid of what they can't see. Yeah. It's like growling at something uh, as a warning, you know, but it's the way that like, uh, because ostensibly this is how humans do it. This is the, these are human analogs, despite the fact that they're animals. So like, this is how humans do it. We, we hide somewhere and we act big and scary and you know, it works like 75% of the time. More or less. Yeah. Um, this is why we have alarm systems that scream. (laughs) Am I wrong? No, you're not. It scares the shit out of the person. I mean, some of our first alarm systems, and, like, people like to joke about, like, why, like, Pomeranians and little yap-yap dogs are like, why do we have them? Like, what what are they good for? It's like, they're literally built-in alarm dogs. They are. Like, like what Chihuahua or, you know, Pomeranian hasn't gone absolutely feral at the sound of something or someone they don't know? That's literally, like, you can't get mad at them for barking like that. It's literally bred into them. It's part of their defense method. Like, one... They keep your hands warm. They keep your lap warm. They're literal lap warmers. That's why they're called lap warmers. Yep. Um, but two, somebody they don't know shows up. They're going to bark to high heaven. Like, who's whomst is in my house? Bark, 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 bark. They were all also bred to hunt, like, vermin, like rats and mice yeah. and stuff. Like, uh, yeah. chihuahuas literally are hunt, uh, bred to be hunting dogs uh, to dive into. Uh, same with Datsuns, uh, are hunting dogs that are... Uh, Jack Russell's too. Yep, they they dive into burrows to pull things out. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent on Pomeranians, but I know that they were also vermin killing dogs. Like a lot of our smaller breeds that are now like you know very highly aesthetic, uh, like turned to like high aesthetics rather than like work. Were originally working dogs. That's why they're usually they extremely the... high energy. Yeah, what they call the toy breeds. Yeah. And then, of course, we bred them to be, like, teacups, and those are just, uh, teacup chihuahuas. Don't get a teacup dog. Don't get a teacup dog. The only reason we had a teacup chihuahua is because we, uh, uh, took her from my great uncle because he couldn't take care of her anymore because he had her, and so we took her in, and she was, like, old as balls. She <laughs> this was, dog like, is old. Old, old as balls. balls. She was, like, 10, 11 years old when we got her. She died at, like, at... Like, we don't know specifically how old she was, except that she was old and had, like, two teeth. Um, Oh, baby. And she lived, like, another decade. (laughs) Sometimes a dog just says, no, I'm not leaving yet. And she would bark and growl and howl with the best of them. Ginger was great. I loved her. She was a a lap dog. My mom fucking loved her. Um, Back at the, uh, back at Marshank, uh, Tolgru and Keela happily greet Feldo. They pull apart two logs at the back of the um, compound. Bark, uh, Bark John helping to corral and encourage the, the slaves out of the compound. Uh, they set the two logs against the ramparts and help lower slaves from there with a kelp rope onto like some um, like uh, a mattress. uh, straw it's mattresses. Like a... Yeah. Um, Bark John takes a moment to grasp his son's paw, praising him and asking, where is Martin? Feldo says that's a tale for another time. As they laugh quietly together, Droop's voice rings out an alarm because he's a little bitch. (laughs) Um, Bitches get stitches. (laughs) God, snitches get stitches. Snitches get dead. Uh, Bad Rice leaps to action at once, laying about with Martin's blade to bully his crew into moving. But they seem slow and confused. He turns on Clog and his crew, who all still seem relaxed. It's not their slaves who are escaping, after all. Uh, Badring says that he expects Clog to keep an eye on the actors. He knows they're tied up in this somehow. Now, of course, as this is happening, Bala, Roanoke, and Buckler all exchange words and looks, agreeing that it is time for them to slip away. They got uh, exit, stage left, pursued by Bear. Uh, <laughs> as- it is time to vamoose. 
Uh, as they begin to do so, though, Clog leaps up, demanding to know where they're going. And Balas says that they all need their beauty sleep. Uh, and in a literal wink, they are surrounded by the Corsairs. Clog says that it is not friendly to run off like this. Why not do one more bit of magic for them? So, Bala agrees. Why, he can make the whole troop vanish, even when surrounded. So, Clog gives him the go-ahead. Uh, Bala goes, he gets hefty logs to give to the whole of the crew, like each of them gets a wooden beam except for Roanoke. Uh, Roanoke, uh, goes to her spot at the front of the cart and, like, you know, chains herself up to it because she's the cart puller. Remember, horses stopped existing. Um... With one more grand speech, he yells for her to charge, and they lay about with the magic wand logs as Roanoke charges through the sea rats. Claude <laughs> leaps up, yelling that it's a trick, and Bilal replies that of course it was. He told him so. And Kit... <laughs> Alright, I like Bilal, okay? <laughs> He's using his cheeky hairishness for the powers of good... And generally more good than obnoxiousness. So, okay, <laughs> fine. You like one hair. You have two hairs, I think, that you like. Two, yeah. Well, I, I liked Basil before he got character assassinated in the sequel. There's also, uh, you like any of the lady hairs, typically, because... Yes, like, I like the lady hairs, because they're generally not as gluttonous as the, the guys are played up And if be. they are, it's in a way that's less, like, gross... Not to, like, gender it, but it's... The joke there is, isn't is that they're gross, you know? The joke with them right. eating a lot, it is actually funny. Yeah. Um, whereas with a lot of the, like, male hairs, it's just gross. The joke is that it's gross. Uh, back with our... With the, with the slaves, Tulgru shouts out uh, her own warning from atop the walls as she spots the vermin charging towards them. Only about half of the slaves are out. And so Feldo improvises a weapon with some rope and a rock and uses it to bash and bully the slavers to give the others more time. Now, I read this, and at the beginning of the chapter, the chapter art is very distinctively a hedgehog wielding this exact same weapon. So I was like, is Feldo just really buff? <laughs> he, he is, but not like that. It is, in fact, a hedgehog, as we will see in a minute. Uh, yes. Badrang is beside himself with anger, uh, and he hurls a spear at Feldo. Feldo manages to dodge it, but it takes Barkjohn through the shoulder. Uh, it's just a flesh wound. It is only a flesh wound. Hilgors does the stupid thing and pulls it free from his friend. Uh, blood loss, friend. But blood loss. You need to break it off at the head so that he doesn't lose more blood. <laughs> Yes, but then it's not as dramatic, is he? No, it's not. Also, they don't know that. They don't. Anyway, uh, uh, but uh, Hilgors pulls it free and uses it as a weapon. Like, he charges into the fight with it alongside Feldo. Now, at a certain point when, it, uh, when things start getting worse, Hilgors trades the spear for the rope weapon, ordering Feldo to take his father and escape. Feldo, you know, has a moment where he's like, uh, but, but, uh, but then he does as he's ordered, aided by Tulgru, and they make their way over the wall. Hilgors, already struck by arrows, makes a brave stand. He's basically blocking the path with his bulk and, like, stabbing at people, uh, like, he was stabbing at people with the spear, but now he's got this huge stone on a rope that he's using to just whack people with, um... He once more tells Feldo to, to leave as another arrow takes him and he starts to fall. Like, it hits him fatally. Fel you know, I will say it is interesting because it's not often we see a hedgehog making a brave last stand like this. Like, they're not often given the role of the heroic We've sacrifice. We've usually... two very good hedgehogs in this book so far. Because Palum mm -hmm. and Hilgors are both very good hedgehogs. The hedgehogs at the Abbey... The, they're, they're generally more comedic alcoholics, yes, they've, unfortunately. They're, they're softer-spined. <laughs> they've, they've had the easy life. They've got soft quills. <laughs> you know? That's so, that sounds like an insult somebody would throw around at Redwall. Oh, look at you with your soft quills. I think it's been said before. 
Yeah, like that that sounds derogatory. I don't know why that feels bad. That <laughs> feels real bad. Don't like it. It's like saying someone has uncalloused hands. Uh, Feldo tries to go back, but he is stopped by Tolgru, who says they can't waste Hilgors' sacrifice. Uh, like, he does a heroic sacrifice. Like, he dies doing this, and this is one of those moments where it's like, this was a necessary heroic sacrifice. Because yeah, it's it not exactly feel... heroic, it's necessary. Because... It doesn't feel bad. Yeah. Uh, the horde is swarming up the walls at this point, though. The slaves who couldn't escape make their way back into the compound. The last of them is Droop, who fell those spots and calls out his name. Droop, though, refuses to turn, instead threatening to report the other slaves if they don't let him through. They are blocking him from getting, getting through because it's his fault, you know? This yeah. is, of course, his last words, as the thrown spear from Feldo takes him right between the shoulder blades. And it's like, hey, look at that. Brian actually let one of the heroes get a moment of revenge. Yep. I was quite pleasantly surprised. Like, I was I was a little shocked that Droop was removed from the narrative so quickly. But I do find it's, this still honestly, satisfying. it's not that quickly. It's about halfway through the book. True, and he has served his narrative purpose. Yeah. He's no longer needed in the story. Because none of the slaves are going to trust him anymore. They know no. he's a snitch. They know he's a liar. He won't be useful as a spy anymore, so he would have gotten offed by Bad Rang anyway. Yep. Ah, oof. Big yawn. Alright, the, the trio, though, can now jump to safety, cushioned by welcoming hands and a straw mattress. They're greeted by Bella, because, like, as this is happening, the cart just comes screeching up! Uh, and Bella asks if there's babes and women in the group, uh, and Feldo says there are, as well as his wounded father, and a very angry Badrang right behind them. So, Bella orders the youngest and the ladies up into the cart, as well as, uh, Bark John. Uh, Who's hurt? And the rest need to get ready to push and run for their lives. Uh, but first, they need to wait. Uh, and as he spots Clog's crew come barreling around the corner towards them, as well as Badrang's crew reach the top of the wall, he orders them to all go. Like, as he's waiting, like, the, the, the straw mattresses get pushed, like, they get kicked to the side so that they're no longer directly under the wall where, like, they can be jumped down onto for a soft landing. Uh, and they fucking take off like a, sh like a fucking gunshot. The cart is barely the touching dark. the ground. Every able-bodied creature who can is aiding them, shooting off to the south. Badrang shoves his men over the wall, saying that if slaves could do it so easily, they can too. Some leap willingly, even, to avoid his anger. But without the mattress, they have hard landings. Or, you know, soft landings on top of Clog's crew, who retaliate in confusion. The two groups fight tooth and nail for the rest of the night, just as Bala hoped they would. Bala is extremely smart. Like, he I would make like a him. good Salamandistran hair, I think, because he has a very tactical mind. Honestly, like, this might be a little mean to say, but I think he's better than a Salamandistran hair in, like, big asterisk there, in that he <laughs> has the initiative. He yeah. thinks up the plan. He's the leader and so of the. On. He and Roanoke are the co leaders of the group, but he's the one who has the tactical mind, and Roanoke yes. keeps him from doing stupid shit. She she has the leader She's spirit. The mom. She's He's got the mentality. Mom. Yeah. As and... most lady badgers end up being, they end up being the group mom who will just be like, "You need to fucking stop, or I'm gonna like cuff you." Come on. And I I have a note here. Like, yes, I like Bala with an asterisk <laughs> when he's being when he's not being a face stuffing bottomless hole. <laughs> so when, whenever he's not being the t prototypical hair, I like Bala a lot. And I he has a it. lot more depth than some of the hairs that we've had in the past who, you know, were extremely smart. But that joke of them being bottomless pits kind of overshadowed that i think the only thing that we the only time we didn't get that was actually in salamandastron for the most part because the hairs were so focused on what they were doing right like we still they, had they actually... some of the jokes of them being like a bottomless pit because we had the one what's his face the one that we really didn't like yeah i don't remember uh, oh shoot it was it was the one that was sent off to redwall the, the bard. 
shoot. I can't remember the hair names. No, but that was the, was the one from Mariel of Redwall. Oh, right, yeah. That was the bard. This <laughs> is the one who was, um... Wow, we just read this book. Hold on. <laughs> you say just read that, but we read this book back in November. This is fair. There's been a lot going on. We're back with um, with our travelers. Meanwhile, Rose has come face to face with a terrifying creature. It has the body of a fox, the feet of an owl, and the head of a snake with three eyes and all too many teeth. She tries to stop herself from running into it, but the other two bowl into her and they all three crash into it, rendering it into a dusty heap of rubble. It was just a doll held up by vines. They spot Martin just a ways off, sitting atop a great hollow log. He shows them it was the log that made the voice so intimidating. And the culprits, of course, turn out to be a family of four rabbits. We get rabbits again. Mm-hmm. Rabbits. Uh, so weird. Yeah. The difference between rabbits and hares is so stark. I mean, to be fair, the difference in real life is just that stark as it well. Is. Um, like, you you will never confuse a hare for a rabbit. Yeah. And the last time that we saw rabbits, it was also, like, the way that the family dynamic was was weird. It is very weird. It's like, he uses rabbits to display, like, British Traditional that, British values. Yeah, that he can't really work in. Because, like, you know what's weird about them? They're weirdly modern. That's what's weird about them. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, we're going to get to that. Seeing yes. that the rabbits are out cold, Rose asks in horror if he's killed them. He chuckles and says that he'd followed her example, he'd used his voice. He'd snuck up behind them uh, and let out such a terrible yell, the whole family had fainted. Uh, Rose pats the two baby rabbits, scolding him for being a bully. Martin is, of course, highly confused and offended. What else was he supposed to do? Attack with his sword or ask them nicely to quit? It's, uh, it, it's really funny, and you really kind of sympathize for Martin in the moment, because he's, like, sitting there like, wait, like, I didn't actually hurt them. What did you, what did I do wrong? I, I think it's, it's, it, Rose is thinking about, like, how she would have done it, and she would have done it differently, and Martin is just like, Bleh. I think Martin is in the right to be offended here, because he, yes, he, he did yes. do, he didn't hurt them. And he hasn't harassed them. He yes. he gave them what they were giving back, which is, you know, like the Christian thing is to turn the other cheek. But, you know, he didn't hurt them. He just, like, made them stop in a nonviolent way. Mm -hmm. So Rose revives the parent rabbits who pull back, panicked for a moment. And they're like, no, you get like, oh, you tear like they're they're they, they're like, oh, where is a uh, grub the 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 growler? Oh, uh, and when it's revealed that it's just them, the, they ask them to leave. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth 
a Solar Hope Punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.